We left off last evening talking about silence. How it isn't all that valued. And that once it comes to be valued, perhaps we don't fully know what we're getting into, that is the full depth of it. And that it's only natural, then we search for it. We try to get it, and of course that drives it away. And what was mentioned was our strong conditioning to equate life with uh, deeply ingrained patterns of verbalization, thinking, talking, and coming to think that living, to equate living with doing, accumulating, action. And silence perhaps being an unknown or a residual category, just sort of pulling over to the side of the road for a while till you get back on the main highway. And then what was suggested that, uh, in truth, uh, practice opens us up to a whole new dimension of living. It's quite dramatic if you allow it in. And it changes your life forever. Again, it's not to eliminate or to in any way demean talking and thinking and doing. But it puts it in a very, very different perspective. It actually helps improve it dramatically. Remember one uh, Thai teacher that I had, we were talking about right speech. And there you, you pay attention to your speech. Uh, seeing if there are occasions where you are not exactly being truthful or you're being harsh or what you're saying is divisive, is going to cause some, cause some splitting up. Or maybe it's just small talk, not amounting to much. And, you know, you, you listen and more and more start to become sensitive to your speech. What he said, suggested was that the more you taste silence, that will help you the most of all. He said, because when you really drink and taste the beauty of real stillness, uh, sometimes you don't want to speak at all. But if you're going to speak, it should be something that, in a sense, doesn't sully the silence. Or put another way, you hear it. You hear things that are off, that are a false note, very, very easily. You become more sensitive. And that sensitivity is both sensitive in uh, noticing things and also sensitive in terms of being vulnerable, um, fragile. And this was on a number of people's minds uh, through some notes and also this morning. Uh, through the practice, if you open up and become more sensitive, you can't 
truly limit it and say, I'm only going to be sensitive to this, but not to that. We're already doing that. Our sensitivity is somewhat compartmentalized. One person might be very sensitive to music, but not to other things. Another person sensitive to cooking, another person to children. Uh, but it's a rare person who goes beyond such compartmentalization and understands that it's what's important is being sensitive to life as a whole. And with practice, the fragile part of the sensitivity uh, eases up and you become stronger without losing the sensitivity that you developed. And we mentioned the importance of uh, that it was not a waste of time, hardly, to spend time in silence to allow it to work on you, to operate on you. That silence is highly charged with life of a very, very subtle order. And it brings with it intelligence and kindness that's there. It's not something cultivated. Somehow, in some magical way, we come out of the silence all the better for having been there whether it's in the realm of perception where we just see things more clearly, hear things more clearly. It can affect the arts. Some of the great traditional art, religious art, comes out of minds that have ob obviously tasted uh, deep stillness. In tasting it, what was suggested is how we have to relax and let it come to us because it's shy. It won't come out if we try to grab it or command it. Or if we're excessively articulate, uh, shyness will hide, even though it's infinitely more articulate than any words we can put together. So that little by little we have to weaken our compulsion to think that, um, to give final authority to, to knowledge, the accumulations of knowledge, thought, and so forth, to value them, to put them in place, but to understand that there's something even deeper that awaits us, and that's not in opposition to what we're learning and knowing, all the skills, but actually can enrich, augment, and um, deepen our lives that the spiritual journey is an inner journey. It includes what we call outer, of course, but for most of us what we need is help to go inside. And so we find ourselves perhaps tasting this. And then the challenge becomes silence in action. That is, uh, whatever degree of clarity, because you could call silence clarity as well. And of course, there's going to be a, a vast range of intensity, depth, width of this kind of silence or clarity. But certainly, uh, all of us can taste some of it. We already have, I'm sure, over the week. 
our minds have had moments when we, when we felt clearer. So then the challenge becomes um, actualization. Can we bring whatever clarity we develop in situations like this and sitting quietly at home as well, can we bring that into the rest of our lives, uh, fully engaging in our life? And that becomes a tremendous challenge in practice, filled with all kinds of dead ends and wrong moves, where we become fixated on places like this and then it's at the expense of the rest of our life. We subtly or sometimes not so subtly degrade life. Somehow everything outside of retreat can be seen as inferior or uh, even vulgar, worldly, sometimes that word is used. That's really a, a, a rather limited way of looking at what we're doing. And so now uh, we enter the world, uh, let's say with a silent mind, which of course is very easy to lose. It doesn't take much, certainly when we begin. Um, I'd like to, I know many of you are very new to the practice and uh, both this morning and this afternoon um, it's clear that there's a lot of interest in now what? What do we, how do we bring this back home? What do we do with it? Any hints? In a certain way, um, I think it's a, in a profound way, there, you don't really need any hints. That is, the practice is the same all the time, everywhere it's always and forever going to be pay attention and learn. So why do we need special instructions? Well, certainly when you've done, when you're new to retreats, they're so different than everything else we've done that it seems like we're going back to something uh, that uh, needs special kind of almost rehabilitation for. Part of the problem is that uh, very often you could view life itself, again, nothing personal, but for many of us, as a battlefield and we've been wounded in it and we come crawling into IMS or some Zen center or wherever it is and it's like the, the battalion hospital. <laughs> and we go through, you know, 10 days of rehab and <laughs> nurturing and all kinds of nice medicines and good food, fresh air. And then at the end, somebody is saying, it's great to go back out there. Well, we're sending you back out into combat. Wait a minute, that's the place that drove me here in the first place. And so we go with certain ambivalence or reluctance. In the extreme, we go back, especially if you, some, some people actually fall in love with this practice. I finally found what I want to do. This is it. I've been looking to all my life. Does that sound familiar to any of you? Of course, that's the honeymoon phase. <laughs> but it can result in going back 
and subtly or not so subtly discrediting all that's not retreat life. Where the only reason that life exists is to go back to earn the money to come back to another retreat. And while you're out, out there, sometimes this is called yogi land and that's called, I don't know what, some other land. Um, our mind is on the retreat we just finished and on the retreat that we're looking forward to coming back to. In the meantime, most of our life is whizzing right past us. People and relationships and the fullness of what life can be. Maybe I'm exaggerating a little bit. Now, some of the problem there is that... Well, let me put it positively. The reason I say that you don't need special instructions, although we will give some hints, is that um, a view of this, of this practice and of, uh, of its place in life is one that I received from my first teacher. And essentially, I'm grateful that I was started off that way. Not everyone teaches the same way, and I'm just happy that I was started off this way. And the way is that you see life as a seamless web. There's just life. There's nothing, and all the, um, wherever you go, you're alive, you're in this place, and it's the perfect place to practice. Now the mind will then, of course, play games. It sets up special places that are good for this and other places that are good for that. This one's good for retreats. It is. This is, remember, an intentionally designed form. It's a stage set, a brilliant one. It's been tested for centuries. And it's a set of conditions that helps us calm the mind, helps us look into ourselves. And I, I'm, for one, I'm extremely grateful that someone cooked it up so that I could enter into it. But then somewhere along the line, and at the beginning it's good because it, you're, we're motivated to do this special thing, but it can backfire. But from a very profound point of view, this is just life too. It's not really different than uh, when you go back to work, when you uh, are with your family or partners, husbands, wives, school, whatever we do. And if you're not careful, you wind up in a dream. This is a Vipassana dream. You're dreaming that you're a yogi and a student, and we're dreaming that we're teaching you. Whereas if you look with a clear mind, the clear mind that perhaps we've all had at least a moment here or there, you see that finally when all is said and done, it's a bunch of people, human beings, who are going through certain necessary physical movements that must attend to their body, that must relate to each other, must eat, and so forth. And this keeps going on. There's only daily life from this point of view. When we're in a setting like this, then the guideline for good practice would be wholeheartedly enter into it. So here, the situation is such that it calls for silence and lots of sitting and walking and so forth. Then when you enter here, exhale where you've come from fully your home, your job, your wherever you've come from. Exhale that fully so that you can inhale IMS fully. And then when the retreat ends sometime tomorrow, fully exhale IMS 
so that you can fully inhale where you go next. Do you see what, I, that, what I'm getting at with that metaphor? Uh, so it just keeps going like that. Wherever you are, each situation has its intelligence built into it and suggests what is appropriate to be done, what needs to be done. If you're confused, you don't know what is correct action in a particular situation, then pull over to the side of the road if you can. Pause. Acknowledge that you really don't understand. Gain some clarity and then enter into it. So it's a simple encouragement to live wholeheartedly. And that means what, what is being focused on is how precious and sacred life is. Because whatever we encounter, it's our life in that moment. Retreat time, wonderful. When retreat time ends, driving home time, that's the next challenge of life for us. And as we head, get closer and closer to Boston, which is where some of us are going, and you're going where you're going, your hard-earned samadhi starts as the mileage ticks off, the samadhi gets weaker and weaker because the conditions have changed. You know, what we've created is not absolute truth. It's put together by conditions. And these are ideal conditions to help us get calm, concentrated, feel all loving, compassionate. And then the first person who cuts us off. Uh, and then it gets a little noisier. And then more cars and then trucks and then police and then fire. And then before you know it, you're back in Boston. And uh, it's as if you never left. Not really, because something's learned here. But good practice is not necessarily clinging to the samadhi that you got here. In fact, that isn't good practice, because I think it's probably a hopeless endeavor. But rather noticing how your samadhi just falls away <laughs> as you drive back. <laughs> and there's no attachment, because now you're in what's next. Right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, uh, one very, very helpful, I think, encouragement is, is to begin to see your life as a whole. In uh, Jewish mysticism, the Hasids have a little way of looking at things that is also can be helpful. They say that God assigns some, some portion of life to each one of us. No one's left out. And it's entrusted you to you to take good care of. So whatever your portion of life is, your little realm, take good care of it when you get back there. Uh, it isn't necessary, it's not inferior to being here, nor is it superior. It's what your life is next. There are many traps where, some, again, this is a point of view that not everyone has it. You're just subject to you know, we have the, what is it called for the present? Bully pulpit. Yeah. You, you have to listen to me. Um, sometimes the sitting and walking of the form, formal meditation is seen as this is really where it's at. And so everything else becomes somewhat secondary and subsidiary, as I mentioned already. And sometimes it's the other way. I said, no, the real test is daily life, how you are on the job, how you are with your, in your relationship. That's the real test. This is sort of like a little laboratory or uh, 
a prep field to get ready for the real thing. Uh, I've found both of those, I've been stuck in both of them, I've found both of them rather limited. Uh, I think the real thing is where you are. And uh, some people will do a lot of sitting. Their nature calls for it, their temperament calls for it, and they'll flower through doing lots of quiet sitting and lots of retreats like this. Some people will be a bit more active. You can't fit everyone into one mold. But I think the most helpful instruction that I received was not anything about particular methods of folding your legs or where to follow the breath or any of that, but to understand that first and foremost, there's life and life is for living. Okay, to help us, some of the barriers that come up is that uh, something which we call problems turn up a lot. And the attitude towards problems, the normal attitude, is somewhat different than the Dharma attitude towards problems. We treat problems with uh, great annoyance and disappointment. Somehow it shouldn't be this way. If only this problem weren't here, I could either live well or I could practice well. Um, I think the Dharma attitude is something like, at least the way I hear it, is only the dead don't have problems. Uh, the dead are problemless. I mean, life includes problems, obviously. It's one of the most obvious things you can see. So it's imperative that we learn to accept that and learn how to work with it and not uh, always get disappointed and resistant and see it as somehow negative and uh, draining and this, that, and the other. Obviously, if you can guide your life in such a way as to minimize problems, that's wisdom. Wisdom is the art of living happily. But no matter what, uh, how good a job you do, no matter how sensitive and wise you are, uh, things can't always go your way in terms of the unfolding of the physical body, in terms of nature and so forth. So an attitude that's much more helpful is to begin to see that what we call problems are all attitude, are all opportunities to learn. They're all opportunities to learn and to grow and to develop. There's a tremendous amount of energy usually uh, trapped in what we call problems. And if we can open to it, uh, kind of in a sense crawl inside of it with mindfulness, the solution is there. It usually unfolds and uh, we move on gracefully into and through it rather than wasting our time always bemoaning things. So that can help. There's so much to cover. I, I just want to put out a few basics. Perhaps what might be useful is uh, to kind of move through our day and take just a few areas and, and give you a sense of how to, how to bring the practice back, especially for some of you who are very, very new, many of you who have been here many times, 
know this, but I think a little reminder sometimes is helpful. Establish a daily practice. If you're drawn to this practice, and you're the only one who knows, if you're really drawn to it, you feel at home with it, it there's an affinity, um, it resonates with you. Even if it was difficult or hard, that's not, that's not a problem. But you honestly feel a connection with this. Then what I would suggest, especially if you live in uh, metropolitan areas where there's lots of Dharma scenes and choices, please don't go shopping. Just do this one well if it really fits. If it doesn't, even if you're the only person here, everyone just loves Vipassana, it's fantastic, it's the greatest thing I've ever found, but you don't think so. There's something off about it. Or breath, such an obsession with the breath, isn't really your way. Respect that. I mean, if, if, you, if you really look into it and conclude that, and then perhaps you should shop. Not perhaps, you should. There's so many other paths around. If you've gotten very discouraged here, and it's not because it's difficult, but because somehow this practice is inappropriate for you, which it could be. There's no one meditation for everyone. But please don't conclude that you're not cut out for meditation. This may not be the right form for you. And then look until you find one that is right for you. I was on many, many paths. And it really makes a difference. When you find the path that's correct for you, you know it. It has nothing to do with how hard you work. It's just easy because you're where you want to be rather than perhaps trying to uh, squeeze yourself into some pattern that isn't really you at all because, I don't know, all your friends think it is or you think you're supposed to or whatever. Let's say you have sweep that aside for the moment and you've accepted, yes, I really want to do this practice. Um, calm mind, a clear mind, a mind of stillness, uh, needs practicing. We have to set aside each day a period of quiet, some quiet time, find some quiet time in your life and try to sit in stillness. Sit with, essentially, it's really quite simple. What we're learning how to do is to be with our, sit with ourselves, for, to set aside some time as we go home, when we go home, to be for you with you, where there's no other purpose. You're not caring for someone or holding down a job or preparing a meal. It's just exquisitely simple. It's just you with you. It's helpful if you can set up a place that's congenial in your home, wherever you live. Try to have the practice regular. Not sort of sit for four hours one day and not sit again for a week. Uh, regularity is very helpful to find this silent time, one or a few times a day. You're going to have to make the choice and the judgment. Uh, how long should you sit? These are questions that we get often. I don't know. For one person, uh, 20 minutes is an eternity. For another person, they're just getting warmed up in an hour. Uh, but you're all professionals now. You can all sit for a while. Although, be prepared when the conditions change and you come home and you don't have the Sangha here, you'll find out the value of the Sangha, why it's one of the three refuges, that how important it is to have friends on this path. 
I don't know if we could have faced what we've faced and done all the sitting and walking that we've done if we had just tried to do it on our own. I rather doubt it. But all of us together are stronger. Even It's a strange kind of group retreats where you're here alone but also together at the same time. You're here to go deeply into yourself to understand and yet having other people here is very much a part of that. When you come home, you may not have that support. If so, you're going to have to make your own decisions. Use your inborn wisdom. Uh, how long you should sit, I don't know. You'll figure it out. Challenge yourself a bit. If you conclude that without the support of the Sangha, uh, at 40 minutes it becomes really imp- almost impossible, sit to 45, but don't overdo it. In other words, challenge yourself a little bit. Go a little bit beyond your capacity. But don't go so far beyond your capacity that you make it uh, oppressive and soon are not doing it anymore. At the beginning, we try to fit meditation into our life as it is. You know, we have an ongoing way of life, for those of you who are very new, and for some of us who have been practicing for a while as well, and we try to tuck in meditation here and there, fit it in here and there. As the practice deepens, if it really takes for you, somehow the priorities come, it switches around. You, you start reorganizing your life to protect time to sit with yourself, to be quiet, because it turns out it's not a luxury item. And sometimes people come with that attitude. It, we pick it up somewhere. I, we often get asked this question, isn't it selfish? Any of you think that, especially new people? Just sitting there for hour after hour, just being with yourself, isn't that selfish? It can be, depending on how you do it, but uh, test this out with your own life, see if it's true. Uh, The greatest gift you can give, social contribution, is a little bit more sanity, a little bit more kindness, a little bit more clarity, less pettiness, and so forth. To the degree to which you start to clarify your own life, that's what you have to give whoever you meet. That's what you're bringing back to your family, your friends, your job, your school situation, and so forth. So the time that you spend alone at home is not an indulgence, as I hope you'll see. Uh, For some of us, you realize this is really uh, vital. So that the you that goes out into the world each day Uh, has a better chance of behaving in ways that uh, are beneficial for yourself and for others. If you're drawn to Anapanasati, then uh, practice just simply concentrate the mind, calm it on the breathing, and when you feel you've calmed down, then just sit and be open. You know, you've heard it like a lot all week. And if you're able to stay in focus, then continue that way. At a certain point, you may not be or you're tired of this moving field, then go back to the breathing and learn how to do that. Okay, now, uh, however much you sit, probably for most of us, most of our life will be off the cushion. And that's why it's so important to have the right attitude, to really not see life as second class in any way. This only happens for people who really Um, become enamored with this practice, 
who really see the value in it and the beauty of it, I won't deny that. I mean, that's the commitment I've made in my life. This is what Michael and I do. There's not like another thing we graduate to after this. You know, if we do this well, then we get a promotion or something. This is it <laughs> for us. The term intimacy was uh, used a number of times, intimacy of practice, and that's been a very helpful term for me. In many ways, as it develops, it's synonymous with a silent mind. The reason that we encourage you to take your yogi job seriously, uh, to really practice and sometimes ask you in interviews about how, what your yogi job is and are you doing it, is that that can actually ease your way back into, into so-called daily life. If you learn how to do it, do one thing at a, do one thing well. That is, if you're uh, washing the dishes, or if you're chopping vegetables, or whatever your job is, intimacy is when there's no separation between you and what you're doing. Separation is when we are doing something and at the same time thinking about it or thinking about something else. And we may do the job beautifully, but we have two bosses if you're on this path. One is to do the outer job well, whatever it is, cleaning, sweeping, etc. The other is to grow inwardly as you do it. It's not just to be a, a fastidious, very concentrated, uh, compulsive, whatever it is you're doing. It's to stay awake in the midst of whatever you're doing. And the main way we learn that is to see how we're not. That is, uh, the intimacy comes about by seeing separation, how we're divided. It's not so much manual labor, sort of like aiming yourself at your job and making yourself do it. It's not that, that way at all. It's more uh, becoming sensitive to, as you are taking a shower, noticing that your mind is not there at all, and that the soap is going and the wash rag is going, everything is happening and the body will get clean, but you are on, in Samoa somewhere, or wherever you, you're going. And just seeing it, in the seeing, usually it falls apart, falls away, and you're back just taking a shower. You're back just taking out the garbage. So all day long, especially at the beginning, uh, we're hardly ever where we are. Wherever you are, there you aren't. <laughs> Again, to paraphrase a well-known book, And it's true, all day long, let's get out of here. Somehow, we're always uh, lurching forward into what's next. The silent mind is a mind that's at peace inside and can fully look and listen and be with whatever is called for, whatever is next. And we lose that silence. So that silence in action uh, grows out of seeing that so often we behave from a noisy mind, the mind that's under the influence of me and mine, that's driven by some project and goal where we're out of control, uh, unaware. We've gone into this enough. And just seeing it and coming back to the simplicity of this moment. Intimacy, of course, doesn't stop with taking out the garbage or taking a shower. 
uh, it's meant to apply to the rest of our life. Relationship, of course. Now, the way we're using the term intimacy may be somewhat different uh, than the way it's used uh, in ordinary language, where often it has a coloration that's very romantic, sentimental, idealistic, and words like that. For most of us, uh, the big challenge when we come back, as maybe it is everywhere, including even here, is relationship. Relationship for so many human beings is a battlefield, literally in some cases where people are just murdering each other. That's relationship, you know. That's the attitude that they have towards each other. And that's the attitude that we have towards one another. Uh, in this sense, we're doing very deep peace work. This is the peace movement. Because when we look at the record of the human race, I'm not going to get overly political, you'll soon get that on CNN you know, when you get home. But when we look at the record of the human race, we've done beautifully with extraordinary technology and lots of polish in terms of all kinds of things. We have clean bathrooms. And in another sense, we have not grown at all. It's still a battlefield. We're still uh, amazingly undeveloped. And so every time a, an individual uh, takes a stand on that and decides to see if they can become harmless, which is one of the, I would say, the highest thing you could do, to stop being a problem. We're all a problem for each other. That's important work. In addition to whatever else you're doing. So relationship, of course, is essential. One way to look at relationship is to see it as a mirror. That is, every time we come in the presence of somebody, we have a reaction. That's the way it happens. We happen automatically. We like them or dislike them or don't care. We notice them or don't notice them. Something happens. And so, in a certain sense, we're being given teachings each time. We come in relationship. It's showing us something about ourselves. And uh, a life of awareness is learning how to move inside and outside in a very fluid way. It's like the tides going in and out. It's a unitary movement so that throughout the day we're, we're in touch with our insides and yet we're also, we have to be aware of the outside, of people and events and whether we're driving or we have a job that requires movement and so forth. So that there's this fluid unitary movement between being sensitive to our reactions to what's happening as it's happening to us and the necessity to be highly alert to the world out there, which is quite real. The breath can help. In some situations, the overwhelming requirement is to pay attention to what's going on, in which case the breath can be in the background alongside of you, helping you to stay anchored in the present moment. But the main requirement is to pay attention to what you have to do to drive or to listen to somebody. 
or some other compl complex set of activities. And in other situations, there's virtually nothing asked of us. We're waiting for a train. We're waiting for a plane. We're waiting for a clerk to fill something out. We're waiting for an elevator. Uh, you can turn to the breath in a little bit more full of a way. And uh, those moments add up, I found. At a stoplight, you know, probably most of you have read Thich Nhat Hanh. The red light now can be like a temple bell that reminds you to come back to yourself. Instead of being impatient and when is it going to turn to green so I can get to where I don't want to be faster? <laughs> we now see it as an opportunity to sit and breathe, calm down a bit. Those moments add up throughout the day. There are a lot of little times like that where there's not much asked of us and we can use the breathing and or if you're not so drawn to the breathing, it doesn't have to be the breathing. Be aware of, be aware. Be mindful of the body, just notice red or whatever it is. Note, notice your annoyance, your impatience. So that um, if you hear what I'm saying, another way of putting it is that life is teaching us. Life is the great teacher, you know. It never stops. Not only is it teaching impermanence, it's teaching whatever we need to know. Um, and when it comes to our daily life, including relationship, where we bring this mindfulness that we've cultivated, and we've worked very hard now for quite a few days and nights, uh, it's not meant just for the cushion. It's meant for whatever your life is. It's meant to be brought into relationship. Now, to begin with, I don't know if you see it this way. Um, help in order to practice can come from the five precepts. It can come from all methods and techniques. But none of these will really help you very much unless you really want to learn. So to me, the question some years ago became uh, how to live. And it takes a great deal of humility and courage to admit that you don't know how to live if you don't. It's obvious that we don't, at least in many areas in life. Otherwise, planet Earth would be paradise. But once you become what is known as an adult, somehow you're supposed to have all the answers. Fortunately, children come along, and they're the ones who need the help, and you tell them how to live. In the meantime, have we figured out how to live? Uh, it takes a great deal of strength and humility to be able to understand that, you know, I don't know. I don't know how to live. To question the validity of how you do live. To question the validity of how you treat people in your life. Associates at work, people you're married to, children, whatever, everyone. To start fresh. If you think you know, then there's nothing to learn. Fine, just go out and just do it. Just live your life. It's that example of the cup is full. You know, there's, there's no room to, for anything uh, to come to you because you're all set. I don't know how to live. What, are you kidding me? Of course I do. Well, there's got to be something that's a little off. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. Right? If you were just a totally radiant, happy person, there are better places to be. Skiing somewhere, or you know, all kinds of fun you could be having. But we're here. 
uh, in one zendo that I practiced in in Japan, um, if anyone fell asleep, this Zen master would scream out of them. We, it had to be translated for me. And, uh, <laughs> uh, and what he was screaming out was, uh, the zendo, zendo is meditation hall. He said, the zendo is not a place to sleep, it's a place to die. <laughs> to die to all that's unnecessary and useless and stupid. Uh, so I guess we've had some dying to do. We've come here and we're trying to um, change, to learn and to grow. So I think as people go, I assume that you are closer to having an attitude of being able to acknowledge that you really don't know, whether you call it beginner's mind or don't know mind or an openness, a tentativeness. I don't know how to live and I want to learn. And not in some abstract way, but very concretely with the people that you live with, the people that you work with, and so forth. Mindfulness, of course, is central in this. If you don't pay attention, how can you learn? So you've, you've been honing and developing the most important skill, which is the capacity to pay attention, because all the beautiful things come out of that. That's why we do so much of it. If you're dragging your mind and your body through life, something's off. I don't think life was created for that. That we kind of, we have a Yiddish word, schlep our mind and body through life. I don't think so. Look into it if there's, if there's that. Find out what that's about. Um, obviously life is difficult, but everything that we're learning here is designed to help us turn everything around and make it work for us. Just a few last remarks on work, because I know it's on a lot of people's minds, and then uh, I don't want to talk too much longer. If you can find work, oh, before I go, the precepts can be a tremendous help, whether you formally take the five precepts or not. You all, I think you all know them, not to lie, steal, not to misuse sexual, that one again, energy. <laughs> Etc. Um, let's say, and some of you were, uh, feel drawn to stillness, to entering into the vastness that the mind offers us, that is possible for us. Do you think that you can do that if your life is in shambles, you're uh, dishonest, stealing, robbing, uh, but when you get to the cushion you're totally sincere? Do you think that that doesn't count? Somehow that's, uh, I don't know where that goes, into the void somewhere? So realistically, so many conditions go into the, the day when you finally find the mind is very, very still. And the, the wonder and beauty of being able to taste that, to let that heal you. So that the way we live 
contributes to what happens on the cushion, and what happens on the cushion contributes to the way we live. If your, uh, your life is in disorder, then you have to clean house. The precepts are good guidelines to help you see, not mechanically or as an obedient good boy or good girl, but to alert you to begin to see that you're making trouble for yourself and for others. So that's a very important part of it. It's an extension of what I'm saying. When we get to work, of course, it's helpful to pick work that is not about destroying people, obviously, that where the precepts are not violated in the process of earning a living. Just a few things in regard to work, which is, as you know, a very rich subject. One, what's ideal is to find work that you love and which pays you adequately. Uh, but if you look around, we know that most people don't find that situation. So that uh, it may, when you start to really examine your life and ask real questions and to look, it may lead you out of what you're doing and into something else. Um, that certainly happened to me, and I have no, it's the best thing I ever did. Then again, uh, sometimes and very often, uh, there is no choice. We don't love what we're doing and there's no way out. Um, someone in Cambridge some years ago was 58 years old from another co uh, country, had a deep love, wanted to be a doctor, and was going around and around and around on that one. He was, had all these odd jobs, but in the meantime, while he was doing the job, he was not intimate with what he was doing because his mind was, I want to be a doctor, I want to be a doctor, I want to be a doctor. When we talked, it took a while to, for us both to see, look, you're 58 years old, your, your English is sketchy, you have five children, you're not going to be a doctor. Has that gotten through yet? Oh, I think you're right. I guess I'm never going to be a doctor. No. But in the meantime, you're alive and you're doing what you're doing. Can you drop that one and now learn how to love what you are doing or learn how to reinvent it from the inside so it's useful. If you're a waiter, instead of while you're waiting table uh, thinking I'm a great playwright who has to wait table, uh, put through this indignity of having to serve these stupid people when I'm really a great poet and dancer and... Uh, reinvent it from the inside. Uh, see that waiting table is not any lower than other things. It's a way of bringing happiness to people when they come to eat. It's a way of bringing happiness to yourself if you do it with some uh, quality. The thing that's so lacking in the modern world is quality. It seems to be more and more respect and quality are just falling away. Everything's quantity. More is better. Is it true? Have you found it to be true? I think Dharma has everything to do with quality. It's not a matter of numbers. And so whatever you do, when we say do it wholeheartedly, it's not just be somehow a vigorous athlete in what you do. It's do it with sensitivity and caring and bring some quality into your life, which of course automatically brings it into other people's lives. And 
there's no, you know, if you heard what was mentioned last night about Lin Chi, to be a true person of no rank, then you can be as happy with a menial job, I know that's difficult, extraordinarily difficult, as with some other kind of job. So much of it has to do with how you see yourself. I think we did enough on that last night. Uh, and finally, the reflections on impermanence. We're going over the walking period a bit, but this is, uh, again, has come up in a few interviews and a few notes. The idea of impermanence can be helpful in many ways. What we've dwelled upon is seeing it directly and immediately in your mind and body as you sit and walk to begin to see how everything is changing. Uh, related to that is to see how everything is uncertain. That's a corollary of that everything is impermanent. Life is uncertain. Reflect on that from time to time. When things don't go your way, notice that, oh, we were, gonna, had a, we were all set for a picnic, but it's raining. Life seems to be uncertain. You just don't know. Because if you do a bit of that, it becomes easier to move with what happens. So there are ways of reflection in addition to the direct perception of impermanence. That can be very, very helpful. And the samadhi helps there as well. Some years ago, there was a restaurant. Those of you who know Cambridge, it was across the street from the Brattle Theater. It was one of these old-style uh, restaurants with, you know, it wasn't a chain and it wasn't plastic and all, uh, you know, how things are now. It was just uh, down home and the owner was friendly with everyone. We'd all eaten and read our papers and done our schoolwork and, and we all loved it. And I went away for four or five months, I think, on some long retreat somewhere. When I came back, it was gone and there was a... Uh, an extremely stylish boutique with for men and women's clothes, with you know abstract models, you know those kind of and uh, clothes that were beyond uh, uh, what's this, the Italian? What's the uh, you know Italian clothes? What's the famous one? Armani. Armani. It was it was not even recognizably Armani. It was some. It was really in the stratosphere in terms of the design, and and it was very shocking for me and painful. What you can do is I, I sat down and I contemplated it. It's a different kind of use of the practice. You look and realize, I get it. A few months ago, there was sort of people cooking in the back and people running in and out, and uh, Buddy's Steak Pit was part of what was there. <laughs> there was more to the restaurant than that. but uh, And, you know, students and, students and working people coming in and out, and it was lively and a lot of laughter and this, such and such. Uh, it's all gone. And now there are mannequins like this, <laughs> where Buddy used to be. <laughs> uh, and what you can do with samadhi is, with anything really, you can contemplate your own death, you can, any theme, something that's on, you mix it in, get concentrated, follow your breath for a while. And then as you become a little bit calm, kind of, it's almost like, you know, like you need something and when you're baking, K-N, need, uh, and you kind of, when the mind is concentrated, it's more sensitive. And what happens is you can feel the implications of what you're seeing more. You can feel uh, the learning strikes you more deeply. It goes right to the heart. And I got a very big lesson on impermanence. 
um, and letting go of the fact that I guess that place is gone. I, I knew they were planning to sell it, but it, it's, the lesson was much deeper than just that place. So there are many ways to learn this. I bring this up for this reason. Now there's a, a, a kind of suffering that's new in America. It's really old as the hills, but it's new to us. Where people from middle and top management are, be, are being phased out as companies downsize. And people who thought they had a lifetime job with all the benefits that went with that don't. And it's staggering. You know, you hear some of it in the news. and it, um, There's no way to eliminate the pain of all that and the disappointment and so forth. But one of the things that becomes clear is that there's an immense amount of suffering over and above what it has to be because there's been no training to understand the lawfulness that we're all living in. Uh, no matter how secure it may have seemed, everything is uncertain, including that so-called lifetime job. That seemed certain for a certain period of time. Nothing is. I'm not trying to paint a bleak picture. I'm trying to wake us up. And so practices on many levels, taking some of the basic principles of Buddha Dharma that you read in books or hear and seeing examples of it right in front of your eyes so that uh, an intellectual teaching becomes a, has a blood in it and breathes, becomes a real teaching, not just book learning. Anyway, uh, we'll all be going back tomorrow. I mean, most of us will. Um, the retreat is not over. As you probably know by now, the mind is already home sometimes, uh, but, it, but the body is here. Just come back to here, because this is really where you are right now. And without being violent towards your mind, when you notice that you're planning, worrying, scheming, whatever it is you're doing about tomorrow, just see it and come right back to this step, this breath, and so forth. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.